Good morning, Hope Reformed Baptist Church. Open up to Exodus chapter 25. We're in this uh, portion of Scripture today where the Israelites receive commandments and institutions about their worship furniture. You probably don't think of furniture as, or unless you've got a Catholic background, you're glad to sort of be out of that, but the smells, the bells, the gold, the carvings, the seats, the position, it's not all uh, something we're quite used to, but in Israel's instituted worship of God, that is precisely uh, what we find. And, and the context of the story is that if, if we put ourselves in the shoes of Israel, we've been saved out of slavery. We are, we are a nation under subjugation with no freedom. God comes in through Moses, and by miracles, he res, uh, rescues us, redeems us out of Egypt. Now we're, we're in the, 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 the desert, but who are we really? What are we supposed to be? That's where it came in the covenant last week. God spoke the law about how he requires them to live, and then he offered them blessings if they obey that. They said, let's do it. This sounds like a tremendous covenant agreement to be in with a God. And so God offered, uh, God told Moses to offer the sacrifices, sprinkle the people, write down the covenant code, and there you have it. They are inaugurated, sealed, and ratified into the old covenant into the mosaic we call it because it's made with Moses the Sinai covenant that now defines and rules and conditions and qualifies the entire life of Israel as a nation but now the next question is we are required to worship God we are required to serve him how how do we worship him because the, 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 the previous sections of, of, the, of the law so far given, we remember the threefold uh, division of the Old Testament law. On one hand, we have the Ten Commandments, which are universally binding on all times and all people in all places because it is just a reflection of the heart of God, His judgment standards. But then we have the judicial law of God in the Old Testament, which required the Israelites to live a certain way as a nation until the Messiah came. But now we're in what we call the ceremonial section of law. And this section of law, will it's also repeated much in Leviticus, this is now instigating and, and uh, uh, describing how the Israelites could approach God in worship. And as we come to this section in chapter 25 of the book of Exodus today, we have uh, the, this, a section describing the holy furniture. The furniture described and required by God for rightful worship under that, the Old Covenant. Now, here's what Hebrews, while you're in Exodus 25, I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1 to 5. And this highlights the importance of the exact prescriptions and descriptions that God gives to Moses this day. So in Hebrews chapter 9, he says, Now, even the first covenant, that's the one we're studying today in Exodus, the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, studying all those today. It is called the holy place. But behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. 
So, so in Hebrews, they're being reminded that the old covenant system of worship had a lot of precise requirements around the furniture for exactly how you could approach God. Now, we just don't have that today. We, the, 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 the positioning of the seating, the material that your pews are made up of, this beautiful, soft, comfy, terrible plastic, the, 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 the position in which you seat, you're not allocated certain seats by gender, height, weight, that would be rude. We don't do that. We don't have a, a particularly shaped building to make it a Christian building. We are not required to have a, a stage of certain height or lights of certain size or smoke machines of certain intensity or bass of certain depth or guitars of certain volume in order to worship God. Just none of that furniture is actually essential to our worship. Why? Does God care less about the worship in the new covenant than he does about worship in the Old Covenant? The answer is absolutely not. God cares less about the externals of New Covenant worship because what New Covenant worship has is internal reality of which the Mosaic system had only outward realities. It had only outward shadow. But the new covenant, by faith in Jesus Christ, when we gather in the, in the Holy Spirit, one with another, not of the same ethnicity like Israel, uh, not because we've all grown up in the same country or, or because we've obeyed the law or received the old covenant sign. The reason we're here is because we have a common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore we gather with an internal glory that an external glory of the Mosaic system is only a shadow of. So for them, it was a taste, all of the furniture that we're going to go through today, with the gold and the fire and the pure white, it was all a picture for them about God and his holiness and of heaven. But the apostles in the new covenant say that was nothing. They licked up crumbs from heaven, heavenly crumbs, but crumbs. They had a holy place on earth, it was just on earth. I mean, it's holy place, it's great, but it's just on earth. So, so all of the glory of the old covenant, the, old, the, the, the apostles tell us, is, it is the Old Testament's best picture of heaven, and yet compared to the New Testament, it is extremely lacking. It is outshone by the invisible realities of the new covenant. I remember when I was 14, uh, my father had a trip to go to in Borneo, uh, in, in South Asian islands, and so uh, I went with him, and we did this, uh, this hike up what is called uh, Mount Kinabalu, and I'm probably saying it wrong, I don't care, uh, and, and they, it was this enormous, the, the biggest mountain I'd ever, ever, I'd ever laid sight on, and, and it's, it's pretty big, it, it's about double the size of the highest mountain in Australia, but for Asia, it's a pretty small mountain. Nonetheless, we, we, we drive about 10 hours up what felt like near vertical roads, all the way up this mountain to get to the base camp. So we go up this enormous, I'm already at this point, we're setting up in our, in, our, in our stalls in our dorms and putting our bags down, I'm already higher than the highest point anywhere in Australia. And then, even though this is the, the greatest highest point that I have ever been on, on planet Earth, and I'm, I'm feeling pretty high and mighty about this, this is great, the air is thin, the view is tremendous, then the next morning, we get up at 2 a.m. and we go on a 14-hour hike. Probably shouldn't have taken that long, but there was a blizzard. It was supposed to be a family-friendly walk. And by the time we got back down from the tip, they had all of these death-warning, caution, do-not-go-up-the-mountain signs. So that made us feel pretty, pretty hardcore. But at the top, 
I'm now sitting at the top, and as we're going back down through this blizzard, in my mind, I'm going to go back to safety, to the low point, to the resting place, and to the, you know, back down to the bottom. But just a day before, that bottom for us, the, the base camp, the, the safe, low, out of the storm place, that was actually the highest I'd ever been on earth outside of an aeroplane. And, and here's how it works in the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant system, the temple, the tabernacle, the mosaic worship system was the highest they could ever get and ever be to seeing God and to experiencing His glory. But the New Covenant is the tip-top of Everest so that the New Testament writers start saying, this is now our standard. No outward glory, just people sitting here praising Jesus for his blood and his gospel. This is now the tip-top of Mount Everest, so that as you look back to the Old Covenant system with all of its outward glory, don't think anymore, what a tremendous height. Think, what a great base camp. What a great first step on the way to true, real, new covenant glory in the blood of Jesus, not the blood of lambs. That's how I want us to think today. So, while they had a glory, we have a, uh, while they had a earthly glory that smelt of heaven, we have a heavenly glory that is invisible in the new covenant time. And, and this really is the theme of the whole book of Hebrews. As, as he says, don't, get, don't, don't be afraid of the persecution and then go hide away in the religious freedom of Judaism. I know they have the golden building, but we have heavenly realities. I know they have the safety of political protection from the Romans, but we have the safety of eternal wrath in Jesus Christ. I, I know that they have the, the gold and the impressive outwardness and, and all of those things, but we have the truth of salvation in Jesus. Do not think of the old as better than the news. So today we look at the Ark of the Covenant, the table for the bread, the lampstand, and the outside altar in the tabernacle. So let's look first at the Ark of the Covenant. Why, why does Exodus, why does you think that it starts with the Ark of the Covenant first? Because next week we'll study the tabernacle because that starts later in Exodus chapter six, 26. Why do you think in describing the tabernacle, God actually starts first with the Ark of the Covenant? The reason is because basically everything else is secondary to the Ark of the Covenant. Even the tabernacle was just a housing for the Ark of the Covenant, which is the manifestation, the symbolic manifestation of the presence of God among his covenant people. So this is what chapter uh, 25, starting in verse 10, says. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings on it and put them on its four feet. Two rings uh, 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 on the one side of it and two rings on the other. And then you make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings of the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken out. And you shall, put into the ark of the, you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. That's the, the, the tablets of the Ten Commandments. Verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. 
Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its height and its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. And they shall spread their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces to one another. Towards the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put that mercy seat on top of the ark, and I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So the first thing that God starts out with is describing the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And, and it's made of acacia wood and then overlaid with probably up to an inch thick of gold or outside and inside. And, and it's really, I mean, the measurements in meters, if you're looking for that, it's about 70 centimeters wide, 70 centimeters tall, and about 12, uh, uh, 1,200 mil uh, long. So not huge but intensely heavy because it's plated with solid gold. And in it go the the first dosage sample of the manna that was collected back in Exodus 15. And then also into it go the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. And these are the reminders. This this acts as a covenant uh, safety deposit box. Can we say it that way? This is how the ancients used to make covenants with kings. As a king went into a covenant with another one, they would then prescribe their writings, they would sign in blood, all of that. They would keep a copy of that covenant in the footstool of their idols. So what they would say is, God is above, he's holding us to the terms of the covenant, no one should break it. Well, do the Israelites have an idol, a statue of the one true God? Not at all. Instead, what they have is an empty space on top of a footstool. That's all they've got. They've got the Ark of the Covenant and then empty space in between two angels. But in the footstool of God, they put the uh, the testimony of the covenant so that God can look on them and look on the law. This makes the next piece of furniture that it describes extremely, well, well, sensible, doesn't it? That if you've got a holy God in the most holy place, And then you've got the law in front of him. And then you've got sinners coming into his presence. What's the most important need for that very moment? Is a place where mercy can be poured out. Or a place where atonement can be made. And the wrath of that God, as he sees you, sinner, and then looks at the law that you're supposed to uphold, as he sees that difference and you're falling short and your sin and your unrighteousness, he then looks on the blood that is sprinkled on the mercy seat. And that's the, the next part that he describes is the lid. It's really just the lid to, like an esky-sized lid. But this one isn't wood overlaid with gold. This is just pure, solid gold put on top of the ark. And on the sides of it are these two cherubim. Now, this is not a chunky little infant with a, with a bow and arrow. Not what a cherub is. Uh, Michelangelo has just ruined that picture for you. A cherubim, from, from, from the, the visions that we have in the Old Testament, are these part lion, part animal foot, human-faced, terrifying beasts. The, the last time we saw them, they were standing at the, at the gate of the Garden of Eden, guarding the holy presence of God and guarding the tree of life so that mankind could not come into God's holy presence and mankind could not come and partake of the fruit of eternal life. 
This is what they do. Cherubim in the Bible protect God's holy places. Psalm 99, which we read for call to worship, starts out that God is enthroned between the cherubim. These are the the right hand and the left hand security guards in the throne room of God. They are God's designed protectors of holiness. And they sit on top of the lid as fine furnished gold. And they, uh, they there represent the presence of God in his holiness with his people. Uh, The ESV says that this lid is called a mercy seat. It could otherwise be translated an atonement cover. The word translates into English through Greek as propitiation. Propitiation. When God comes and meets the people, as Moses was just told, I will meet you there in between the cherubim and I will speak with you. It was this this seat that that God's, it's as if God's invisible throne is above the lid, his feet are on the lid, and he calls that place the propitiation, which means the satisfaction of wrath. That is why, as the Day of Atonement rolls out in, in, uh, in Leviticus 16, which we looked at a few weeks ago, the high priest had to bring blood of animals and sprinkle it upon that place and, and put much blood that would just cake it onto that seat because there must be blood. There must be a substitute. There must be representation, death, in the place of the human worshiper as they come to approach God. This was the purpose of the Ark of the Covenant to represent the presence of God among the people, to represent the holiness of God, even as he dwelt among the people, to represent the covenant that they had made, and to represent the atonement that is, that, that is required for sinners to be in relationship with God. As we study the Old Testament, one of the, a very important concept that you need to get in your mind is this idea of a foreshadow. Foreshadowing is what much of the Old Testament does. And this doesn't mean that it doesn't have a genuine point, a genuine reality, and a genuine function in the Old Testament. It does, but it also points to something greater than itself. So we can imagine it this way, that that on the great peak of human history, on, on, on the top of Mount Everest of all of human history, Jesus stands with his arms wide open. And there he stands as God's appointed salvation. But before history got to him, his shadow was cast by the sun over all of history throughout all of God's revelation. So so that in the old covenant, what we see is, is these people doing things that look and smell a whole lot like Jesus. Do we read it? We got the Ark of the Covenant where blood is shed so that God can meet man and forgive him and help him walk in his laws. I mean, this looks like Jesus. But we say that with the blessing and the privilege of being the other side of Jesus Christ. So that we're looking back from Jesus' perspective and we can see the shadow that he cast in a perfect cross shape. But for the people who are living down in the valleys of the Old Testament, for the people who lived long ago in those other times, they, 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 they were in the shadow. They did not have the perspective to see the shadow of Jesus Christ. So this is what we mean by foreshadow. The things like this and all of the other furniture items that we look at today, they had a point back then, but they also pointed forward to Jesus so that after Jesus came, the book of Hebrews could be written and we could look back and see how they showed us something about Jesus Christ. And while the ark showed the glory of God, the greater glory of God, 
would be in Jesus Christ himself. That Jesus is the Lord, enthroned between the cherubim, God of God, Lord of Lord, light of life, of the exact same essence of the Father, and yet he condescended down into our experience. Not invisibly anymore. He was visible, he was the image of God, he was touchable, but he was not made of metal. He was made of real human flesh and bone. And he did not just look at the law and then look at humankind. He embodied the law perfectly and then gave his blood on the altar of the spiritual ark of the covenant in order to atone for our sins. So so propitiation was made by God, for God, in God man. Jesus God made propitiation for himself by his own blood in our place. So, so maybe the, old, the high priest of the old covenant could come to the Israelites and say, in this is love, that God has made available an ark of the covenant where we can make propitiation for our sins. But John says in 1 John 4.10, in this is love in the New Testament. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Not make propitiation, to be the propitiation. He did not bring something to offer, he offered himself. This glorious ark had a purpose for them, but by faith we have Jesus Christ, the greater and the better ark of the covenant. For I hope you don't think lowly of the gathering of Christians here and now every Sunday. I hope you realize that by these realities, this largely invisible, where's Jesus? By faith we behold him. He is in heaven. Uh, We we take communion. We do baptism. We we preach and we pray and sing and whatever else we do. I hope you don't think lowly of this and leave it low on your priority. I hope you realize that these have a greater substance, a greater reality, and things more eternal and more glorious than anything shining and glittering with gold in the old covenant. Well, think now of the table of the presence. The way that God sets up his tabernacle, I'm not being crass by saying this, it's meant to be like a home. Like it's meant to shadow in certain ways, to contextualize it for the Israelites, it's meant to shadow a human home. So that as you come into the tabernacle, you sort of see God's furniture. Behind the thick curtain and then the even thicker curtain is where God lives, his dwelling place on the Ark of the Covenant, but, but all around you see the kitchen, you see the dining table, you see the, the front door and, and the doormat we're going to go through with the, with the altar. It's meant to be set up as if it feels like a home because God was communicating, I'm genuinely dwelling in your place. I'm here with you. You all have your homes that, have, that, that meet your needs. I have my home in your place with holy furniture. And and this, uh, today, here in verse 23 onwards, what we see is that God is living in their midst and therefore has a dining table. Do you ever go over to your grandparents' place and there's just always cookies? Or you go over to your your, your favorite uh, neighbor's house and they've always got a jar of lollies just sitting on the uh, the table? Or, or, Or you go over to, what's the most homely, welcoming smell that can ever be emitting and radiating from a house? We all know the answer. It's warm bread, right? Homemade warm 
bread. When you open the door and it just hits you and you just float along the smoke until you find yourself in the kitchen and a, a handful of butter goes on it and before you know it, you've eaten half the loaf. That smell, that's what God instituted for his own tabernacle. It's not meant to, you're not meant to walk in and smell clinical, hospital grade, disinfectant smell everywhere. You're supposed to come in, see gold, and smell fresh bread. And on the dining table, there stood perpetually what they called bread of the presence. So chapter 25, verse 23 says this. You shall make a table of acacia wood, two cubits high, its length, uh, two cubits its length, a cubit its breadth, a cubit and a half, half its height. So that's that 90 centimeters long. 45 wide, 70 high. Verse 29. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense. God made plates and side tableware and cutlery to picture this homeliness. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. So this again is a wooden table covered in gold. And then every uh, uh, afternoon before the Sabbath, the, the Levites would bake fresh bread and put it in its loaves on the, bread of the, uh, on the table of the bread of the presence for God. And what God was communicating is, I am at home in your midst and you can always come to me for your provisions, for your needs. I will meet them all. There's always bread on God's table for you. That's what's being communicated. It wasn't that the bread, like, like the ancient other pagan religions used to do, you bring your food, you put it at the bottom of the idol, and then you scurry away because God needs to be sustained by you. No, no. Paul says in Acts chapter 17, as he's preaching to these foolish pagans, he says, God does not dwell in temples. He is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. He gives to us his life and breath and Everything. That's what, that's what Paul says. So, so in this picture of God dwelling with them, with bread in front of him, he's not saying, I really need you guys to come through for me. I will weary and wax and wane if you don't give me bread. What he's telling them is that I'm in your midst for your good. I'm here providing for you. The, the sermon that this bread was supposed to preach was, God will meet all our needs. There is always bread on his table for us. Now, now, we have many needs as Christians. We have many needs, but none so serious as God himself. We have no need greater than the actual substance of God for us him very self. So that even Deuteronomy says this, and then Jesus repeats it and tells us to pray it. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So that our greatest need that this bread is supposed to communicate is that you need salvation, you need God, you need sustenance, you need the spirit, you need strength, and you can find all of them in and through the person of Jesus Christ. In our spiritual hunger, he is our food. In our death and lack, he is put before us always as a ready meal set there on the table, the bread of life of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, whoever eats of this bread will live forever. This is what Jesus said of his own self. The next thing that we see is the lampstand. Any father just get uh, turned into some kind of red warmongering hulk when you get home, maybe after a holiday or just a weekend or a five-minute trip and realize, heaven forbid, that a light is still on in your home, 
that about six cents of electricity has been wasted in your absence, that didn't need to be on because a kid forgot to switch it off, you're going to hate this section of Scripture right here. Because what God commands is that there would be a light in the tabernacle that never goes out. Oh, I know it's going to be uncomfortable for you, but it never goes out. In the lampstand, we see verse 31 in chapter 25. It says, You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. Don't think a little cute Christmas lampstand that your grandma lights at Advent. Think six foot tall, enormous lampstand. Solid gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base its stem, its cups, which hold the candles, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. So don't glue golden leaves onto it. Hammer and carve it all out of the gold. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three on one side and three branches on the other side. Verse 38. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. This, this habit continues throughout Exodus, which is actually picked up very emphatically in the book of Hebrews, that everything Moses is commanding them to build is as they saw it, as Moses saw it, as he was shown it on the mountain. In other words, whether or not God's got a PowerPoint going, and showing him the different furniture that he needs to make. Or, I prefer to think, that he's literally being walked through either a vision or the actual locale of heaven itself. Moses is seeing into the actual heaven where God actually dwells, where there is created things set up as a heavenly temple where angels minister. He is seeing that and then being commanded, construct these pieces of furniture just like you saw there. That's what we're told in Hebrews. That's what he just said again here. Construct it as you were shown on the mountain. It is to be a shadow of God's heavenly dwelling, his true and real heavenly dwelling. And this lampstand, uh, it, it has one main sort of trunk and then six other branches, so seven all in all. And, and they were to be hammered with um, this sort of progressive organic look. Uh, at the bottom was like the bud of a flower. Up the branch would be it, it coming out into its calyx and, and starting to open. And then in the top would be the flower. And then above that would be the lamp and a little cup. And it's supposed to look like a tree. Not just any tree. It's meant to look like the tree of life in the presence of God, shown in the Garden of Eden first, which mankind was, was severely forbidden to ever partake, but then also that itself merely a shadow of the true tree of life, which is literally in God's presence now, and which will live on and remain to be in the new heavens and new earth in glory. The tree of life is something created by God from Genesis through to Revelation and into eternity to be a constant symbol, a sign. We could say an eternal sacrament if we wanted to speak of it that way, a sign of his life-giving power. This, this lampstand, which was on, and the lights didn't face the holy place of God. The lamps were there for the people to minister. Again, not for God, but for the people. What they were showing is... Not just, this tree of life is not merely the life of existence, but the life of covenantal blessing. That's what's being pictured here. Had Adam partaken of the tree of life, the angels say, uh, the, God says to the angels, he would live forever. 
So what's on offer in God's covenant, in the tree of life of God's offering covenant, is not existence. You have that. It is the life of eternity and blessing. That's what is meant and what is symbolized by the tree of life. Adam failed his covenant, and so he locked us all out of the garden. But this lampstand is a reminder. What was lost in sin? Eternal life. What was lost in sin? The presence of the life-giving God. What is regained back in God's redeeming purposes throughout history? The life eternal. What is gained back in God's redeeming purposes through history? The presence of God himself with his people. In Revelation chapter 22, we see this this promise that that God is bringing back his light to the people again. God is bringing back his life-giving power to those lost in sin. Revelation 22 looks forward to the new heavens and the new earth where sin is no more. And John says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Do you remember there was a river in Eden? Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Do you see this? The undoing of everything lost in the curse, the calling back of those who were sent out of the Garden of Eden, come again, drink of the water, eat of the tree, be in God's presence. Verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The light of God, which gives life to the world and and brings us back into Eden's promises and much more. The light of God, which gives life, brings us back into life, solves the problem of the curse, solves the problem of death and sin, which grants us to eat of the fruit of eternal life. That light, that tree of life, is Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. And those who come to him shall never more walk in darkness. Those who come to him are, by faith in his promises, by believing that he died for you, by knowing that he rose from the dead, by knowing that he is better for you than sin, by knowing that he is greater to behold than anything this world offers, by trusting in Jesus, you are eating of the tree of eternal life and your soul is immortalized in blessed covenantal life with God, and you will see him face to face in heaven. The bronze altar is then shown us. uh, We're going to skip a section of scripture, which we'll come back to next week. Look at the bronze altar in chapter 27. And this is basically another one for the dads. I, I annoyed you with the light that was always left on. Let me make you happy with an enormous barbecue grill. 27 verse 1 and 2, you shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits high, long, and five cubits high broad. Uh, The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits, and you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you overlay them with bronze. So this is 1.4 meters high, and then 2.4 
2.3 meters square, and it's wood with a bronze overlay. Not gold anymore, because it's not in God's presence. It's out in the courtyard for the people. Bronze, not as precious as God's presence, but still uh, 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 valuable. Verse 5. You shall also make for it a grating, a grid, or a griddle is literally the word there, a grill, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. Verse 8. You shall make it hollow with boards as it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. So, so this grill is, is to be this hollow uh, barbecue, which underneath it is empty because as we read back in Exodus chapter 21, they were to make stone and earthen altars and burn things on that. And then this barbecue really just goes and sits on top of it in order to grill the animals that are offered for eating. So it is, I'm not, being, I'm not even being uh, uh, silly, literally a barbecue. It is to grill the animals for the eating over the flame. The coals were underneath, the grid on top, the animals above that. Some animals, of course, were completely consumed and burned to a crisp as a sign of the consuming wrath of God against our guilt. But if the other, uh, 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 if the if the table of the presence was the dining room, and if the the, the lampstand is the the lights in God's house, and every time you walk past God's tabernacle, you can look over the fence and see God's home. The front light is on. We, we can go if we have the right sacrifices. Now you come to the kitchen of God. The kitchen of God where his staff, the Levites, are, are cooking. The chefs and the, and the kitchen hands are doing their work for God as he has required. Now, the kitchen is where the heat is, right? We're coming up to Christmas. And some of you have families that will just get 14 buckets of KFC and eat that to the, to the glory of God. And others of you will have 14 hours of food prep the day before and, and uh, every fridge has been emptied of old leftovers and it's all got prep food and you're going to be up at 6 a.m., quickly come to church, race home to get the prawns already. And if you step foot in your mother's kitchen that day before it is time to serve the meal, you will be scolded, maybe cooked. You don't get in the way of the kitchen preparation at these great glorious family gatherings, but neither do you usually see the kitchen in royal palaces. Right? We all know what a chef's kitchen is. It's one of those rich friends of ours have, and if you have one, invite me over. It, the, the, the chef's kitchen is the kitchen where you cook that is not visible to the guests. So you sort of have a little servery out front, but behind a great wall is where all of the, the intensity, the flowers flying, the, the fire is burning, the oil is spattering, all of that. The, that's where the mess is, that's where the heat is, and in a royal palace, that's just, that's just not out in the servery dining area, is it? You sort of keep the preparation, you keep the, the ugly necessities of the meeting meal out of sight. Well, where did God put his bloody fiery, very visible, bit of an eyesore. Where does he put his kitchen in the outlay of the tabernacle? He puts his right next to the front door. Why? Because the first thing you remember as you've seen the glory of God, the light of God, the gold that is just shining out of that tabernacle and you start drawing near and you come to the gates, the first thing you see as you come through is basically an enormous poster saying, Something has to die. Come no further unless you have a substitute. The home of God, not open to anyone, but open to everyone with the right 
sacrifices. You couldn't come into the tabernacle square without seeing this huge altar with blood splattered over it, with dead animals lying around it, being packed up by the worshippers, taken out to dispose of, or sitting down in their little, their little uh, camping meals to eat the meal of the fellowship. You couldn't come in without seeing that. And it was supposed to preach to you a very clear sermon that people can only come near to God through the death of a substitute. This is one of the most, I will say this is the most important theme or picture that the Bible gives us about the gospel. If you could, if you could summarize gospel truth with one word, the mechanics of how the gospel works, the one you should have in your mind is substitution. Substitution, meaning in my place something else goes. And in that thing's place, I can go. We, we swapped places. In the worshippers' mind, as they come in all ancient Israel, they come with the hope and the, the promise of substitution. I'm a sinner coming near to a holy God, but I have an animal. It will die in my place for my sins, and I will be substituted. I will be counted innocent. In this, we see the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the central thread, the theme that is, is throughout all of the, the, the Old Testament scriptures and that is so clear in Jesus is that the primary need he meets for us is a substitute before God. That as we come to approach God and our sins make us crimson red, filthy black, tar and pitch all over us. The one thing we ultimately need is something to take our place, something to wash us clean by being put to death for us. And this Jesus is. For us, condemned for sin. In my place, killed at the cross. And then risen into glorious life, placed in heaven, so that for all time we can preach, come on in. To all people, however lost you are, sinful you are, unreligious you are, atheistic you are, religious hypocritical you are, right-wing crazy conservative, left-wing crazy, wherever you are, color, age, nationality, whatever you are, whoever you are, you're a terrible, filthy sinner, and no matter how bad you are, you are beckoned to come in. The gates are wide open, and instead of coming in being demanded a sacrifice today, you come in and are reminded that the sacrifice of substitution has already been paid. Come in. Come into God's throne room. Come into God's holy presence. Come into God's home. Come into God's family. Jesus stands as the constant reminder that blood was shed, a body was offered, the law is fulfilled, and God's mercy is on display. Jesus, with all of his wounds, stands by the doorway of heaven. And anyone who will go to heaven, must go through him. But anybody that goes to him will be accepted by the Father. Such is God's gracious promise. If we will worship God, it is because Jesus appeased God's wrath for us. So come into the family, the household, the love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's, let's pray. Father God, this this intricate design and description of furniture in the Old Covenant shows to us that you are a God with high standards. You are a God with particular requirements. And sin and the fallenness of mankind will never simply be swept under the rug for you to establish a home among your people or for you to bring sinners into your presence. Rather, in all of these things, there is a sign of better things to come that Jesus Christ has stood in our place to fulfill your enormous requirement, that, that your stipulations and your infinitely high standards for people to be able to 
come into your presence have been met by Jesus. Lord God, we behold both your severity and your immense kindness. We behold your law and your standard and your judgment and your requirement and we behold the love of God towards us that you sent your own son to fulfill those things and be the wrath-bearing atonement for our sins. Father God, we thank you for this. We thank you also that here in this gathering, we come not with blood, not with outward dress, not with sacrifices, not with offerings even, and not with gold, but we come by faith in Jesus Christ. And there we are accepted. I pray, Lord God, if there is anyone in our midst, and there is, those people who are here, who still put off faith in Jesus, who are still avoiding trusting in you, who are still running away and refusing to call out to Jesus for salvation, Lord God, would you put an end to their, to their running today? Would you let them run full speed into the arms of God? Would you meet them wherever they are at and would you give to them your saving love and grace? Would you meet all their, their, their needs in Jesus for them right now and give to them faith to believe? We pray these things, Lord God, because we know you love to save. We know you love to welcome sinners and we know you love to be worshipped by those who love you in the name of your son. So as we do that, Lord God, please receive our prayers and our thanks. We pray all this in Jesus' name and everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.